Well, all right, friends, good morning. It's good to see you and good to be with you all. Again, my name is Mike Goldsworthy, and um, just a gift for me to be hanging out with you all today. And I know that you all know this, but you have such a gift in your pastor, in Phil, don't you? Like, he is, he is really wonderful. And he plays the cajon, apparently, as well. So on Sundays where he's not preaching, I think that we expect him to be somehow involved in the percussion for the church. Um, One thing that you may not know is that while Phil is a gift for you all, he's a gift to people beyond this place as well. Uh, A few years ago, I was going through a difficult experience at my church. I hadn't faced anything like it before, and I was trying to make sense of it. I was trying to figure out what was mine to own, what was not mine to own, how to did I navigate it well? How, did I, how do I honor Jesus and his church in the way that I engage it? And I reached out to a few pastors around the country to help me like sort of sort through it. And Phil was one of those people who was so gracious as a friend and um, just had such great gifts of wisdom and time for me. And so I'm just so grateful for him and the gift that he's been in my life and the gift that I know that he is in your life. Now, um, he uh, shared with me that we're walking through a series called One Verse, where we get an opportunity as we head into this sort of like new season, next season, whatever is sort of like coming up to have these like passages that we can sort of like hold on to. And and I wanted to share with you a verse that began to work on me quite a bit during the COVID season. It began to sort of shape some things and challenge some things in my own life. It comes out of the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, Hebrews, if you don't know, it's this letter in the New Testament, and we don't actually know who wrote it. It's deep with theology and richness, but we don't know the actual author. But what we we do know is that she sure is smart. (laughs) That's how I know if you're my friends or not. Uh, I'm just going to read it. We'll look at it on the screens in a little bit more context in just a minute. But here's what it says, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, the author writes this, to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. To free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, you know what happens when we have things happen in our lives is that we create a a narrative, a story to try and make sense of them. And so whenever there's some sort of occurrence in our lives, what we do for all sorts of different reasons is we begin to neurologically sort of like make sense of how does this narrative make sense in my life? It's why two of us can have the exact same experience and interpret it completely differently. That through our own experiences, through our own history, through our own worldview, that we're making sense of those narratives and those stories. And what began to happen for me during COVID, because COVID was the great exposer of so many things. And one of the things that began to expose within me is the way that I was making sense of some of the stories in my life, the way I was making sense of some of the experiences that I was having. And this passage in Hebrews began to unveil and unearth within me the way that I was making sense of some of those stories that actually wasn't healthy and it wasn't good and it was keeping me trapped in some damaging cycles. Uh, like, here's, here's how I would think about some of those stories. For instance, a couple years ago, my family, we were actually driving out here to Colorado. We're in Southern California. And on the way, we were going to make a stop at Arches National Park. And I love my family. We love the national parks. Whenever we are on road trips, we try to hit multiples of them if we can. And my wife and my two kids, they had never been to Arches. And I wanted to take them there just to do one hike. It's called Delicate Arch. 
If you've ever seen a picture of Arches National Park, you've seen a picture of this arch. It's the most famous one that's there. But the only way that you get to see it is if you walk there. You have to do the hard work of walking there in order to see it in person. And so as we're driving there, it's a 12 or 13 hour drive for us to get there. And as we're driving there, I'm building up this hike. Uh, I'm telling my family that it's such a unique hike. You've, uh, you walk over rocks. It's not like a dirt path. It's this huge rock that you walk over. And people fly in from all over the world just to do this hike that we're going to do. We're going to go out to see this arch that people all over the world see it in photographs, but we're going to see it in person. And the only way that we see it in person is because we did the hard work of walking there. And I'm, I'm building it up, building it up over those 12, 13 hours. And, and what we're going to do is we're just driving straight there and we're going to hop out of the car and we're going to do that hike after 13 hours in the car. We, we show up there and it's about an hour and a half before sunset and it's still about 105 degrees there. It's hot. And what I failed to tell my kids and my wife is that it's actually a pretty hard hike as well. The beginning of the hike, the first mile of it, as you're going over that huge rock, it's about a thousand foot incline over the first mile, which is relatively steep. There are points along the hike where you're walking along about a three foot wide ledge with a sheer drop off on one side. And I've got a kid who's deathly afraid of heights when we reach that part who is hugging the wall as we go across there. I didn't tell them about those parts because I wanted them to focus on how good and wonderful it was going to be. And so we show up there and we strap on our boots and we fill up our water bottles and put on our backpacks and we begin going. And as we're going up that first hard climb, I took this picture of my wife, Allison, and I. And so there we are in the midst of that like difficult climb, enjoying the experience. And, and actually, to give you a little bit of context, let me, let me zoom this picture out just a little bit here. <laughs> now, that's my son Isaac, and, uh, and he obviously was not having it at that point. 13 hours in the car, 105 degrees outside, an incredibly steep incline. He was not having it. And, and to be fair to him, um, he didn't know he was in this picture, right? Like Ellison and I, we were taking a selfie. He didn't know he's going to be in it. So here's the picture when I said, hey, buddy, will you take a picture with me? Here's the picture he intentionally took with me. <laughs> he, he was not pleased by this experience. And the story that I would often tell myself and the story I would tell others of experiences like this is I would say, like, it was hard and it was difficult, but we needed to push through those things. You need to push through, like, when you feel your limits coming on and feeling like you can't go any further, that's when you push through because there's something beautiful on the other side that the only reason that you get to see and experience delicate arch is by pushing through the difficulties, by blowing past your limits, by not letting those obstacles stand in your way. And one of the things that began to be exposed within me during COVID was this narrative that I was telling about experiences like that, where I began wondering, well, what if it's not actually always like that? What about the times when it's really difficult and hard and you push through to the other side and it's still difficult and it's still hard? What about the times where you pushed through and you did the hard thing and on the other side, it was actually worse and life didn't get better and it wasn't this beautiful picture one of the things that COVID began to expose within me is that the narrative that I was telling is that I needed to overcome and push through difficulties, that I needed to negate whatever my limits were. And whenever I was feeling something that was difficult, that was my sign to sort of push through that thing and that I would manipulate and control things in order to have that story that there's something beautiful on the other side. And even in the way that I would think about that experience, I would almost like manipulate it in my mind to have that beautiful thing on the other side. Like I want the story to be the one 
one where we overcome obstacles and overcome our limits, but what if that's actually not always the best way to live? I began to realize that the way that I was living like that was stirring within me this anxiety that I always had to do more. I always had to push harder. I always had to succeed more. I always needed more achievements. I never was doing enough. But what if the pushing through the thing and it being better on the other side, what if doing the difficult thing, doing the hard things means it will always be better? What if that's actually not always reality? What if our desire to push and to achieve is actually keeping us trapped in some damaging cycles in our lives? I mean, for me, COVID as the great exposer was showing me that I was trapped in these cycles of trying to achieve, trying to do, trying to succeed, and it was, it was keeping me from life. Here's, here's how that rest of that passage goes if we back up just a little bit to the verse before, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, and it's talking about you and I, humanity, Since we have flesh and blood, he too, Christ too, shared in their humanity. That what Christ would do is he would come in the the theological term we use is we call it the incarnation, that he would come as God in the flesh, taking on flesh and blood. And one of the uniquenesses of what that means is that this limitless God would choose to take on limitations. That this limitless God would take on the limitations of humanity. That this limitless God would become human and would hunger and would thirst and would be tired and would even be subject to death. That this limitless God would choose to limit God's self. Philippians to this early Christian leader named Paul would write this in this passage where he would say that though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, that he would empty himself, that he would give up of himself. There's this, there's this early theologian who would say the uniqueness of the Christian story is not that, that God is big, it's that God would become small. That there is this uniqueness within the story of Christianity that God would even limit God's self. That there is something unique within the way that God would interact within humanity. That God would choose to limit God's self. And so he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Those who are held in slavery by their fear of death. Now this text obviously isn't talking about physical slavery. It's talking about more of a sort of like existential slavery. People who are trapped and oppressed and are missing the good, free, and beautiful life that God has intended for them, that God has created for them. The reason that they are trapped there, the reason that they're missing the good, free, beautiful life, the author of Hebrews says, is because of their fear of death, that there's something that's going on inside of them. And what death is, is death is the recognition that I am mortal, that I am finite, that I I have limits and I have boundaries. And so at the root of my desire to sort of push through things and do the hard thing all the time, at the root of my drive to do more and more and to achieve more and more, at the root of me trying to control situations so that they turn out the way that I want them to turn out, and the, the root of me trying to control my kids' lives so that their lives end up looking a certain way and turning out a certain way, at the root of the way 
that I will compare myself with other people and try to best them at the root of not being able to accept who I actually am and the unique gifts that I have and what I can do and what I uniquely can't do at the root of all of those sorts of things is my inability to accept my own finitude, my inability to come to grips with my own limits. It's out of what the author of Hebrews says, it's my fear of death that I can't accept my own mortality. And so I am constantly, constantly trying to arrange my life in a way that I don't have to be confronted with my own finitude. I'm constantly trying to find ways to escape what my limits are, to push past them, to pretend like they don't exist And what Hebrews says, what the author of Hebrews says is a part of what the power of Jesus' death does is it breaks the stranglehold on death. It breaks the stranglehold on what keeps me bound in these cycles, what keeps me stuck in these cycles of my fear of death, what keeps me stuck in trying to defy my limits, what keeps me stuck in not being able to own my own mortality, what keeps me stuck in these cycles that continue to perpetuate themselves as I can't come to grips with the limits of who I actually am. And so I am constantly have this low-grade anxiety because I've got to do more, be more, and achieve more. From, from really early on in the Christian story, the earliest Christians began to recognize that there's some sort of link, there's some sort of interplay between death and sin. That, that somehow, somehow they play off of one another. Somehow they make sense together. Somehow they work together. And so the earliest Christians in the New Testament writings and then after, then the early years after the New Testament, you find them grappling with trying to make sense of how do these two things work together because in some sort of way they work together. And what began to emerge in the church and in the history of the church and still today in the church worldwide are two streams of the way the church thought about this and thinks about this. There's a way that the Western church has largely grabbed a hold of, which is the church tradition that I have been raised in. My guess is if you have been born in America, you've spent your time here, this is the story that you have experienced as well. And the Western church recognizes the interplay between sin and death in this way. The Western church says, well, because of sin, death enters into the world. That death is a consequence of sin. And because sin entered into the world, therefore death enters into the world. Maybe you've heard that story. And we can find lots of early Christian writings in the New Testament to back up that story. What the Eastern church grabbed a hold of was a different understanding of that. Particularly today, the Eastern Orthodox Church grabbed a hold of a different stream that they would find in the early Christian writings as well in places like this in Hebrews, where they would say it actually the opposite way. They would say it's actually death that produces sin. That we're mortal beings, there is only one immortal being, and that's God, and that we're mortal beings, and that being confronted with our own finitude causes us to sin. And sin simply is this. One theologian says that sin is living a less than fully human life. It's living a life that's less than the good, free, beautiful life that God designed and created us to be. And whenever we live into that, what the Eastern church tradition would say is it's because we can't come to grips with our own finitude. We can't accept our own mortality. We can't accept our own limits. And as a result of that, we're constantly trying to defy those limits. And as we try to defy those limits, what we end up doing is we end up living less than fully human lives, less than the fullness of who we were designed and created to be. And so 
It's the fear of death. Hebrews says that keeps me trapped in a place where I fear that I might not matter where I fear that I can't control everything and at some point I'm going to lose control. It's this fear that what I do might not live on. It keeps me trapped in cycles of, in cycles of workaholism because I want to do something and create something that's going to outlive me. It keeps me trapped in trying to constantly pursue the life of meaning and significance, which is this ever, this pursuit that never ends and cre- creates this anxiety in me because I have never done enough to be meaningful and significant. And I keep chasing after it. It's out of this, this fear that, that at some point, at some point I'm going to end and I've got to figure out how do I actually live on? How do I move beyond this? And for you and I in an affluent society where we are not confronted with our death on a daily basis like people are in other places around the world, even even with COVID, I think that this has been true, that you have probably had friends like I have who have, who have passed away as a result of that disease. And even with that reality, you and I, we don't face, we don't face the waking up and wondering how am I going to make sure that my family has enough food today or will this day be our last? And so in a culture like ours, what begins to happen is our fear of death takes on a different sort of experience than it does in another culture where they're experiencing face-to-face with death on a daily basis. There's this one author who writes about this named Dr. Richard Beck. He He's a a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. And in his book, Slavery to Death, here's what he writes. He says, in affluent societies where self-preservation is not a pressing concern, where, where we're not concerned with, like, how will I make it through the day? We begin to worry about living a meaningful and significant life in the face of death. More specifically, in American society, this anxiety, he says it creates an anxiety. This anxiety tends to manifest in the American success ethos. That is, while we might not fear death on a day-to-day basis, we do fear being a failure in the eyes of others or being a failure in the eyes of ourselves. He says, but failure here is simply a neurotic manifestation of death anxiety of death anxiety, the fear that at the moment of death, we won't have accomplished enough to have made a permanent and lasting difference in the world. Dr. Beck says that one of the things our society is afflicted with is with this persistent sense that when I am gone from this place, I won't have done enough. I won't have made a big enough difference. I won't have left a big enough legacy. I won't have had a big enough impact. And then that produces within me a death anxiety where I want to do more and achieve more and have more success. The author of Hebrews would say it this way, you're being held in slavery by your fear of death. I've got to keep doing and achieving and succeeding. And our goal becomes self-preservation. Our goal becomes how do I live on beyond this? How does my life matter more than this? Our quest to live lives of significance and achievement are being driven by death anxiety, by slavery to the fear of death. 
of this idea of like what's going to outlive me that will give my life meaning and significance. And it drives us. It drives us to try to defy our limits. It drives us to constantly do the hard thing and push through. And, but what happens is we do that for so long. We keep doing the hard thing and the hard thing and the hard thing. And eventually what happens is it breaks down within us. Eventually what happens is it keeps stirring in us this anxiety because we haven't done enough. Eventually we get tired and I can't keep doing the hard thing, but I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Eventually what happens is it begins to build this cycle in our lives that we don't know how to break out of because I haven't done enough and I haven't achieved enough and I haven't created enough. I have to do more and more. And so I try to fix what is outside of my ability to fix. And I try to control the things that I have no control over. And I try to do things that are outside of my giftedness to do. And I try to be someone that is not uniquely who I have been designed and created to be. And I don't know about you, but I am constantly, I'm constantly trying to find ways to fight against my own finitude. And it continues to produce in me an anxiety and a restlessness and an unsettledness. And I get tired and I can't be fully present in the moment. I can't receive today as a gift because I'm constantly thinking about tomorrow. And frankly, I think I actually miss a special and unique kind of grace that's available to me at the point of my limits. And I miss it because I'm trying to defy those limits and I'm trying to pretend like they don't exist and I'm just constantly trying to push right through them. And I wonder, I wonder what all I am missing out on by not accepting my limits as a gift and not embracing them as a gift. I wonder what all I'm missing out on by seeing my limits as something that I'm supposed to overcome and I'm supposed to defy and I'm supposed to achieve through and I'm supposed to push through. I wonder what all I am missing by not seeing the limits that I have within myself, the limits that I have as a part of the shared humanity and the limits that I have as the uniqueness of who I am I wonder what I am missing by not being able to actually just embrace those and receive those and to maybe even see them as a gift. Jesus' most well-known sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's at the center point of Jesus' ministry. And if you're to ask me, this is the, the central calling of what it looks like and means to be a follower of Jesus. It's found in those three chapters. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there is this, this sort of like list almost that Jesus goes through. We have called it the Beatitudes. And it's this list of those who are blessed. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And there's this pastor and theologian named Eugene Peterson who passed away a few years ago, but he was such a gift to the church. And one of the, one of the gifts that he brought the church was a uh, translation of the Bible called the Message Paraphrase. And the way that he translated the very first beatitude um, has just been sitting with me for a while. Here's, here's how he translates that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he writes, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when you come to the point of your limits. You're blessed when you get to that point. It's your boundary. It's the thing that you can't push through anymore. You're blessed when you're at that point, when you're at that recognition, when you're at that place that you can't go through anymore because you're blessed at that point because with less of you, there is more of God and God's rule. There is a unique gift and grace and experience of God 
when you can embrace your limit and sit in your limits and receive something that is unique that can only be received in that place. And so if, if what the author of Hebrews writes is true, that Christ breaks the power that holds me in slavery to my fear of death, then there is this unique gift that is there for me, a unique way that I encounter and experience God when I bump up against my limits. And rather than constantly trying to push past my limits, rather than trying to power through them, rather than trying to always overachieve and, and overcome, and rather than trying to always control the things that are outside of my control and fix the things that are not mine to fix and trying to be someone other than who I actually am, rather than all those things, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps there is a gift in the recognition of my own finitude and there's a unique grace and encounter of God that's experienced only in that place. Maybe perhaps one of the things that you need as we all move forward into whatever this next season looks like is the same thing that I need as we move into this next season. It's to receive the gift of my limits. It's not needing to constantly push past them. It's not needing to be someone that I'm not, not needing to be something that I'm not. It's not needing to control things that are outside of my control and it's not needing to fix things that are not mine to fix. And perhaps there's unique grace and a gift that we will experience when we bump up against those limits and we choose not to push past them, but instead to embrace them. I want to I ask if you'd just do a little something with me just for a moment here this morning. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes, and I want to ask you to just think for a moment about where are the places where you're coming up against your limits Maybe what is an experience that you are having with a family member, with a friend, with culture at large, where you are trying to control something that is outside of your control? And as that comes to your mind, I want to ask you to just do a simple, a simple practice. It's called a breath prayer. That you would breathe in and say, God, and breathe out, saying, meet me in my limits. What is a place where you're trying to control what's outside of your control? Breathe in, God. Breathe out, meet me in my limits. What's a situation that you're trying to fix that is not yours to fix? And it's creating within you some anxiety. Maybe you're even having a hard time sleeping. Maybe at times you don't like who you're becoming as you try to fix this thing that's not yours to fix. Breathe in, God. Breathe out, meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. What are the times or the places or the situations or even the people that you're around where you try to be someone other than who you actually are, where you try to be something other than who you are, where you're not able to embrace the unique gifts that you offer and you try to live out someone else's gifts, where you can't embrace the unique personality that you have and you try to clone someone else's personality, where you can't embrace your unique calling and you're saying yes to everything that's not your unique calling. Breathe in, God. 
Breathe out. Meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. God, meet me in my limits. May you, Castle Oaks, may you receive the gift of your limits. May you realize that you can't always fix it and that you can't always create the outcome that you want. But may you see that not as a problem, but as an invitation to receive the grace of God. Amen and amen. Grace and peace to you today, friends.